welcome back to episode two of the Mod Pod. We have another great lineup of articles for you, handpicked from the April issue by Mod Co-Chief Medical Editors Leslie O'Dell and Justin Schweitzer. Up first, Eric DeVore of Omni Eye Surgery in New York reads the cover focus article, What's on Your Radar, that he wrote with Catherine Mastrada, Director of Optometry at the New York Hotel's Trade Council in New York. Their article offers a rundown of some promising ophthalmic therapeutics coming down the pike. The medically-minded optometrist looks for ways to expand his or her role when treating patients with age-related eye disease, glaucoma, post-operative pain, diabetic eye disease, and other conditions. It's important that we practice to the extent of our licenses, which means writing prescriptions, and perhaps more important, knowing about the drugs both we and our MD counterparts are prescribing. Keeping current with the most commonly prescribed ophthalmic drugs helps us be cognizant of and better able to identify adverse reactions or side effects our patients may be experiencing. It also allows us to explore other options when side effects surface or when one class of drug is contraindicated. This article highlights some promising therapeutics in the pipeline for treatment of ocular diseases, conditions, and symptoms in the world of AMD and diabetic eye disease. Although the pathophysiology of diabetic retinopathy differs in many ways from that of age-related macular degeneration, treatment for diabetic macular edema and proliferative diabetic retinopathy includes suppression of the same stimulus that leads to retinal neovascularization ischemia, and subsequent upregulation of VEGF. Abisapar pegol is a designated anchor and repeat protein, or DARPIN, a therapeutic with high affinity for VEGF-A. This new anti-VEGF drug has shown efficacy similar to or superior to that of ranibizumab injections in patients with wet AMD. Two identical global phase three studies, Sequoia and Cedar, demonstrated the efficacy of a 12-week fixed dosing regimen of abisapar with 50% fewer injections than ranibizumab in the treatment of patients with neovascular AMD in the glaucoma world. A pivotal phase three U.S. development program spectrum investigating the use of omidenepag isopropyl 0.002% for the treatment of glaucoma or ocular hypertension was initiated in the United States last year. This follows positive results from phase one, two, two, and two B dosing studies demonstrating that 0.002% omidenepag is the most appropriate dose and that the investigational drug performs similarly to latanoprost in reducing IOP. Omidenepag, a selective agonist for the prostanoid receptor EP2, was found to be generally safe and well-tolerated in the earlier studies. Common side effects of prostaglandin agonists such as iris and eyelid pigmentation, abnormal eyelash changes, and deepening of the upper eyelid sulcus were not observed during long-term 12 months use in a Japanese study. A proprietary microdose formulation of latanoprost is being developed as a potential first-line treatment for the reduction of IOP in patients with chronic angle closure glaucoma, ocular hypertension, or primary open angle glaucoma. In a phase two feasibility dose finding study, 30 healthy volunteers received single eight microliter microdoses of 0.005% latanoprost using a high precision piezoprint horizontal delivery system on two successive days. This treatment reduced diurnal IOP from baseline at one and two days after administration. Patients successfully self-administered the microdoses after training, and administration was well-tolerated and did not result in adverse events. The company expects to enroll the first patient in a phase three trial in the first half of this year. Bimatoprost sustained release is an intracameral bimatoprost implant designed for sustained release. A first phase three study of the formulation completed in mid-2018 showed good results with the device over a 12-week period, with comparable efficacy to daily use of a prostaglandin analog and superior efficacy to daily timolol. 
When we discuss with patients the options of initiating medical treatment or performing selective laser trabeculoplasty in the setting of primary open angle glaucoma, an intracameral implantable device may be a viable alternative to topical medications. In patients who opt for laser treatment first, if a desired endpoint is not reached, this implant, if approved, may be a reasonable next step before initiating lifelong topical medical therapy. In the world of postoperative pain and inflammation, submicron lodopredinol tabinate ophthalmic gel 0.38% is an investigational formulation that uses novel submicron particles to facilitate ocular penetration of lodopredinol into key anterior segment tissues. If approved, this ophthalmic gel would be the lowest concentration lodopredinol corticosteroid formulation indicated for the treatment of postoperative inflammation and pain after ocular surgery. In September, it was reported that this investigational formulation of lodopredinol met dual primary efficacy endpoints in a clinical trial. It was significantly more effective than vehicle in completely resolving ocular inflammation and pain after cataract surgery. Additionally, submicron lodopredinol tabinate ophthalmic gel 0.38% had an acceptable safety profile regardless of whether it was administered two or three times per day. In the dry eye world, in a recently completed phase 2b clinical trial, Reproxilap topical ophthalmic solution improved both signs and symptoms of dry eye. Aldehydes are posited to play a role in potentiating ocular surface inflammation through reactive aldehyde species. In patients with dry eye disease, reactive aldehyde species may contribute to ocular inflammation. By diminishing aldehyde levels, Aldera's topical ocular aldehyde trap platform is a novel approach that may augment existing therapy and in severe cases, reduce or eliminate the need for corticosteroids. Additional indications for reproxilap may include treatment of uveitis, chronic allergic conjunctivitis, and atopic ocular disease. A phase 3 study assessing the use of reproxilap 025 and 0.5% in treating allergic conjunctivitis was completed in November. Results are pending publication. SKQ1 is a small molecule described by Mitotech as a cardiolipin peroxidation inhibitor, a compound designed to reduce oxidative stress within mitochondria. The company is exploring its use for several indications, including treatment of moderate to severe dry eye disease. In a phase two U.S. clinical study of 90 patients at a single center, the topical ophthalmic formulation demonstrated statistically significant superiority over placebo for several endpoints, including fluorescein staining, ocular discomfort, and grittiness. SKQ1 was reported to be comfortable and well-tolerated, and no unexpected or serious ocular adverse events occurred with its use. The first patient visit has been completed in a phase three multi-center clinical trial, VISTA-1, with three treatment arms, two concentrations of SKQ1 or placebo administered twice a day. Top-line results are expected to be released in the second quarter of 2019. SKQ1 has received marketing approval for dry eye disease in Russia. In the world of allergies, in July, positive top-line results were announced from a phase three study examining the efficacy of preservative-free ophthalmic solution EM100 in the treatment of ocular itching. EM100 demonstrated non-inferiority to the over-the-counter comparator product ketodafin fumarate ophthalmic solution 0.035% in relief of ocular itching and was also statistically significantly superior to placebo at all time points measured with no adverse events. The primary outcome measure in this study was ocular itching on a scale of 0 to 4 at various time points. In the world of myopia control, there are no FDA-approved therapies for slowing the progression of myopia but in the pipeline with this goal in mind is a microdose therapeutic atropine. The FDA recently accepted an investigational new drug application to initiate the phase three chaperone study, a US-based multi-center randomized double mass trial that will enroll more than 400 children between the ages of five and 12 years to test two concentrations of the microdose atropine 
and a placebo-control arm in the treatment of progressive myopia. One particular microdose formulation and delivery platform uses piezoprint technology to produce high-precision, volumetrically controlled topical medications to be applied directly to the ocular surface. In the world of madriasis, phenylephrine tropicamide is a fixed combination microformulation product candidate being developed for pharmacologic madriasis. Two phase three trials of the drug have been completed, though no results have been posted to date. In the first trial, MIST-1, patients received either the fixed combination phenylephrine 2.5% tropicamide 1% ophthalmic solution, or one of the two component drugs individually, all administered with microdose dispenser. The second trial, MIST-2, compared the fixed combination with placebo. Data from both trials are expected in the first half of this year. For clinicians to practice evidence-based medicine, it is imperative to be cognizant of the modern therapeutics available to treat patients as well as those in the pipeline. Keep an eye on the above-mentioned medications for updates in clinical testing and potentially eventual FDA approval. Next, to offer you some contact lens content, Patricia Fulmer of Madison Eye Care Center in Madison, Alabama, reads her article, How to Start on the Right Foot with Your Contact Lens Patients. According to a survey conducted by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, between 80.9 and 87.5% of all patients admit to having at least one risky behavior regarding their contact lenses. These behaviors include swimming in lenses, sleeping in lenses, storing or rinsing their lenses in tap water, not replacing lenses, solutions, or cases in the recommended interval, and not visiting the eye doctor at least annually. These risky behaviors can lead to potentially devastating ocular complications, such as corneal ulcers, neovascularization, corneal edema, and conjunctivitis, among others. Additionally, only 65.4 to 68% of patients purchase their lenses from their eye care providers. This opens the door for companies to switch out lens brands, materials, and even prescriptions in some cases. Although it is impossible to stop all risky behaviors in every patient, setting the tone correctly during the first contact lens consultation can play a determining factor in your patient's compliance and purchasing decisions. In this article, I review some tips and considerations to help make that first impression a positive and impactful one. Number one, consider every visit a possible consultation. It is important to remember that almost all visits, including red-eye appointments, can turn into content lens consultations. With new technology making soft lenses more comfortable, breathable, and moisturized, younger and more complex patients are able to wear lenses successfully and should not be counted out before trialing. Let's suppose a patient comes in for a problem-focused visit and is diagnosed with severe dry eye. In addition to providing therapeutic treatment, you might find that this patient is a great candidate for Daily's Total 1 by Alcon, which utilizes smart tears technology to stabilize the lipid layer of the tear film. Or, the patient might be right for a scleral lens that can protect the damaged ocular surface. Specialty lenses such as sclerals, hybrids, and rigid gas permeable lenses have become much easier to fit. These modalities create opportunities for patients previously unable to achieve great vision. You and your staff should always be prepared to introduce the idea of contact lenses to your patients and consider using them in more medically driven and unique cases when appropriate. Number two, consultations begin with your staff. During a patient's time in an optometric office, he or she will interact with the staff for a much longer amount of time than he or she will interact with you, the doctor. This means that your staff has the opportunity to introduce and discuss contact lenses and answer many questions before you enter the exam room. For this to be successful, the staff must understand which lenses you prefer to fit, 
which patients are appropriate candidates and which are not, which rebate options and lenses are carried in the office, and what patient complaints might be remedied through contact lenses. An example might be a new presbyopic patient who can no longer read fine print, but who does not want to wear her reading glasses daily. An educated staff member might hear this complaint and ask the patient if she has considered multifocal contact lenses. If the patient has not, this query plants the idea and gives her time to formulate questions before the clinical exam begins. However, if the patient has thought about these lenses and already has questions, the team member may be able to answer them ahead of time and give the doctor insight into the patient's thoughts and preferences before the exam. Keep in mind that not only your clinical staff, meaning technicians and scribes, should be fluent in contact lenses. Receptionists, opticians, and other employees throughout the office will also encounter patient questions, and they should be able to answer most of them to ensure that your patients have a positive contact lens experience. Number three, set realistic expectations. One of the biggest deal breakers for new contact lens wearers is unmet expectations. This can be the case for both patients who have never worn contact lenses and for established wearers trying a new modality. Remember to educate your patients regarding the reasons you are choosing a particular lens for them, but do not overpromise. Instead, make sure that you are setting realistic expectations. For instance, if the patient has dry eye, educate her about the potential signs of dryness and give recommendations for alleviating those symptoms before they occur. If the patient is new multifocal or monovision wearer, inform him that he may still need reading glasses in some circumstances, particularly when lighting is poor or the print is very fine. The more the patient understands about a particular contact lens, including its strengths and potential challenges, the more likely he or she is to be a successful wearer. Number four, discuss cost and combat online purchases. Make sure to discuss the cost of contact lenses up front with your patients. By doing so, you prevent future sticker shock and open the door for conversations regarding your prices versus those of competitors. Make sure you know the rebate options for the lenses you prescribe, understand how the patient's insurance may factor into purchasing, and become familiar with your most common competitor's pricing in order to have the most successful financial conversations with your patients. In addition, inform patients of other services you can provide if they purchase through your office that online retailers will likely not offer. These may include providing trials when needed or replacing unopened boxes of lenses if the patient's prescription changes before the next annual appointment. Number five, encourage compliance through education. Compliance with content lens wear is a daily challenge in optometric practice. Lack of compliance can lead to vision compromising conditions for your patients. It is our responsibility to inform patients of the risk involved with use of these medical devices. As previously mentioned, more than 80% of patients admit to breaking compliance in some way. This means that more than 80% of contact lens wearers are putting themselves at increased risk for complications. Through proper education and tools, we can attempt to curb this probability. Eye care providers should give patients clear instructions regarding handling and care, replacement schedules for their lenses and lens cases, and symptoms of problems that should be reported. Providing samples of recommended solutions is an effective way to educate your patients on proper lens cleaning and to equip them for success. And finally, number six, work together to ensure success. Content lens fitting is an exciting facet of optometric practice that allows us to improve our patients' daily lives. If you implement the tips laid out in this article, you will help your patients leave your office educated, prepared, and excited about their new content lenses. 
By setting the tone correctly from the beginning and making sure your patients know that you and your staff are available when needed to troubleshoot any issues, you will ensure their long-term success while simultaneously building and growing your practice daily. Nearly 200,000 corneas are transplanted worldwide each year. Here's Sarah Bell of Mid-Atlantic Cornea Consultants in York, Pennsylvania to get you up to speed on corneal transplant options. Lamellar surgical options are replacing full thickness grafts for many indications. Corneal transplants are among the most successful organ transplants in the world, helping thousands of individuals each year regain usable vision. Since the first penetrating keratoplasty was performed in 1905 by Edward Zinn, corneal transplant techniques have evolved and improved, and a number of new transplantation options have emerged. The aim of modern corneal transplantation is to best correct the problem at hand while minimizing tissue use. This article reviews some of the alphabet soup of tissue-sparing lamellar keratoplasty techniques that have emerged in recent years and outlines some of the characteristics of each one. This is information that optometrists need to know for dealing with patients with issues requiring corneal surgery and for communicating effectively with surgeons. Internationally, penetrating keratoplasty, or PKP, provides an integral role in restoring sight. In the United States, the penetrating technique is now generally reserved for eyes with severe keratoconus, especially in the setting of previous high drops, full thickness corneal scarring, and emergency therapeutic keratoplasty in the setting of a corneal melt. Optometrists should expect patients to have a long visual recovery after PKP, often up to one year. Medical contact lenses will likely be necessary to achieve best visual correction, but the timing of medical contact lens fitting is dependent on suture positioning. It may be necessary to wait until sutures are removed for the best fit, but fitting can commence as soon as the swelling at the junction of the graft and host is resolved. Deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty, or DALK, was described in 1999 as a technique for addressing scars and dystrophies that affect the anterior corneal stroma. With DALK, the patient's endothelium is preserved. As a result, endothelial cell death during transplantation is reduced and endothelial graft rejection is eliminated. Additionally, preservation of the normal host endothelial function allows postoperative swelling to improve more quickly than after a PKP, and there is less irregular astigmatism induced as well. This technique is used most commonly for keratoconus, stromal dystrophies, and any anterior scarring that has not damaged the endothelium or decimate membrane, but it is too deep to be successfully addressed by phototherapeutic keratectomy. Clinically, it may initially be difficult to distinguish DALK from PKP as the suture appearance is similar, but careful inspection with an optic section at the slit lamp will reveal an interface that does not penetrate the entire cornea. We can usually prepare patients to experience a speedier recovery than is true with PKP, but it is important to tell them not to be discouraged if recovery takes longer than expected. Interrupted sutures still may remain for one to two years and can be selectively removed to minimize postoperative astigmatism, which improves the potential for adequate vision with spectacle correction alone. The deep lamellar endothelial keratoplasty, or DLEC, technique emerged in 2000, just a year after the advent of the DALC. In this technique, the patient's anterior stroma is preserved and the posterior stroma, decimase membrane, and endothelium are transplanted. The result is a better visual outcome, faster recovery, and better maintained integrity of the globe compared to a PKP. Soon, this posterior lamellar technique was refined so that only decimase membrane was stripped from the host cornea, leaving the posterior stroma intact. The resulting technique was termed decimase stripping endothelial keratoplasty, or DSEC or if a microkeratome was used for the graft preparation, 
They call it Decime Stripping Automated Endothelial Keratoplasty, which is DSAEK. Most such procedures result in visual acuity of 2050 or better and generally do not require medical lenses to achieve improved visual acuity. A final iteration of the posterior transplantation technique, Decime Membrane Endothelial Keratoplasty, combined stripping the host cornea, Decime Membrane, as well as stripping all the posterior stroma from the donor cornea, leaving only Decime and the endothelium intact for the donor tissue. The result is transplantation of an extremely thin and fragile layer of tissue, and the procedure can result in visual acuity of 2025 or better with minimal refractive shift. The decision of whether to use DSEC or DMEC usually depends on comorbidities such as previous glaucoma surgeries and on the ability of the patient to lie in a face-up orientation postoperatively to control the tendency to rub the eye. DMEC graft takes longer to adhere and the surgeon uses a combination of air and SF6 gas to float the graft into position which requires one week of postoperative positioning. The DSEC graft attaches quickly and is floated with air alone, reducing face-up positioning time to 24 hours, which can be monitored overnight in a hospital setting. DSEC can also be secured with a safety suture in patients who are expected to have difficulty postoperatively. These patients will require vision in one month or less and will usually require only an updated glasses prescription to achieve their best corrected visual acuity. The immune-privileged nature of the eye makes rejection of corneal transplants less common than with other transplanted organs, but rejection does occur. Frequent monitoring for early signs of rejection or neovascularization is critical, as in many instances, rejection can be reversed with high doses of steroids. Preferred long-term monitoring for transplant patients would be at least three times per year or every four months and four times per year every three months in those with lower endothelial cell counts or previous signs of rejection. The corneal surgeon will typically see transplant patients every six months to check endothelial cell count with specular microscopy, and their primary eye care provider will see them once in between for their comprehensive exam. Some may be seen more frequently by their primary eye care provider if they have other ocular conditions that require monitoring, such as glaucoma, but endothelial cell count, pachymetry, and slit lamp exam should be performed at least twice per year. Studies suggest that prolonged prophylactic treatment with steroids, most often prednisolone acetate 1.0% or fluoromethylone 0.1%, reduces the rate of rejection from 9.1% to 4.9%. As with many topical steroid therapies, patients treated with this regimen are at risk for steroid-induced glaucoma and must be watched for increases in IOP along with careful examination of the optic nerve. One of the goals for future advancements in corneal transplant procedures will be limiting the risks of graft rejection and failure. The advent of scleral lenses has already decreased the need for DALC and PKP greatly over the past several years. Many patients with moderate to severe keratoconus and even patients with significant corneal scarring can achieve adequate vision and acceptable comfort with scleral lenses. Scleral lenses should therefore be at least attempted before considering a DALC or a PKP. Preventative medicine has also had an impact on the management of keratoconus. The U.S. FDA-approved corneal crosslinking, or CXL, for treatment of progressive thinning and distortion of the cornea in 2016. CXL has been found to be more than 95% effective in strengthening the collagen bonds in the cornea, thereby stopping the progression of keratoconus. If keratoconus is identified early and treated with CXL, many patients can continue to achieve functional visual acuity with glasses alone, reducing dependence on medically necessary contact lenses or the need for a future corneal transplant. CXL has been performed on children as young as 8 years old, and studies have found it to be effective for at least 7 years. Unfortunately, developing ways to avoid the need for an endothelial keratoplasty has been proven to be more difficult. 
Fuchs dystrophy, damage after intraocular surgery, and other inflammatory conditions can disrupt normal endothelial function. The best chance to avoid transplant in many such cases may be through rehabilitation and the development of new endothelial cells. In recent studies in Japan, investigators used a topical rho kinase inhibitor in conjunction with stripping of decimate membrane to induce cell regeneration and limit cell apoptosis. Stripping decimase membrane without transplantation induces bullous keratopathy until rokinase drops begin to work, so potential innovations in this technique may therefore include injection of cultured endothelial cells or transcorneal cell regeneration without decimase stripping using topical therapies. Significant advances in corneal transplantation techniques have allowed better access for patients and improved rates of success. We can now recommend these procedures to our patients with confidence that they will have better visual outcomes and less recovery time than would have been possible in the past. Innovation will be needed to further reduce or eliminate rejection and complications of corneal transplants in the future. Every issue of Modern Optometry includes a collaborative eye section. Our last article is by Mitch Ibach of Vance Thompson Vision in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Here he reads his article, Co-Managing Glaucoma Patients Through Cataract Surgery. Three values that continuously are rising in the U.S. population are the mean age, the number of cataract surgeries performed per year, and the number of patients diagnosed with glaucoma per year. In 2017, nearly 4 million cataract surgeries were performed in the United States, up from 3.6 million in 2015. Cataract surgery alone can be considered a treatment for glaucoma. Multiple studies have shown that removing the thickening cystic lens and replacing it with a thinner, implantable ocular lens can lower IOP by 2 to 5 millimeters of mercury. Microinvasive or minimally invasive glaucoma surgery has been a powerful addition to the options for patients with comorbid cataracts and glaucoma. When we speak to our patients with glaucoma about cataract surgery, it is an excellent time to recommend a concurrent MIGS procedure. Collaborating with the surgeon or surgical center starts with building a relationship around trust and communication. For patients with concomitant cataract and glaucoma, if a combined surgical procedure is desired, referring to an ophthalmologist who performs MIGS or other glaucoma procedures is the first step in the process. The second step is communicating with the ophthalmologist via a high-quality referral letter. Often the patients you refer have been seeing you as their primary optometrist for many years, whereas the ophthalmologist may have only a 15-minute consultation with the patient. A letter outlining a brief history and pertinent personality traits can be helpful to provide to the ophthalmologist. For cataract patients, notes on the patient's visual goals and postoperative expectations can help drive satisfaction. For glaucoma patients, attaching visual fields and OCTs, although many surgical centers may repeat them, is helpful. Noting maximum IOP history and discussing recent glaucoma stability can all be beneficial for the ophthalmologist. As a final step, the optometrist should also let the ophthalmologist know about his or her aspirations to co-manage this patient's surgical care. Optometrists should strive to be the frontline diagnosticians and detectives for patients with both cataract and glaucoma. When a patient with glaucoma has visual concerns due to cataract, the optometrist should make the referral for cataract surgery with the consideration of adding a glaucoma procedure. When we educate patients about cataracts with or without glaucoma surgery, all optometrists should inform patients about the following two things at minimum. First, let patients know that the surgeon will present vision correction options that can be performed at the time of cataract surgery. Second, 
let your glaucoma patients know that they may be candidates for a concurrent MEGS procedure that could lower their risk of glaucoma progression and potentially make them less dependent on glaucoma medications. Until the patient undergoes the surgical evaluation, continuing current topical glaucoma medications is preferred both to prevent glaucomatous damage and to allow the surgeon to use the full toolbox of MEGS procedures from an insurance standpoint. Optometrists are all well equipped for co-management of many MEGS procedures. Most MEGS procedures do not complicate co-management any more than traditional cataract surgery co-management, which optometrists are already handling. This is not to say that different surgical procedures do not have different depths of post-operative management in possible comorbidities. Each ophthalmologist may have a different co-management paradigm. Gonioscopy is one skill that differentiates when it comes to co-managing patients with combined cataract plus MEGS procedures. When these procedures are angle-based, meaning trabecular meshwork and Schlem's canal, gonioscopy is key. The area that is stented or operated on cannot directly be assessed without a gonioscopy mirror. Performing gonioscopy once postoperatively on these patients is sufficient unless there is a suspicious or unexpected event in the postoperative period. On postoperative day one, vision and IOP can be quite variable, as is the case with any cataract surgery. Corneal edema can lead to decreased vision from an endothelial disruption and or elevated IOP. Sadly, even after a MIGS procedure, IOP spikes from retained viscoelastic material, one to two days postoperative, or steroids, four to 30 days postoperative, can still occur. In the first 48 hours, IOP spikes can be controlled by burping the wound, mainly paracentesis, to remove aqueous or ophthalmic viscosurgical device material and adding a topical aqueous suppressant. At one week, and more commonly two to four weeks postoperative, if an IOP spike is thought to be steroid-induced, the co-managing doctor can speed up the taper of the steroid to aid in normalizing IOP. In surgical cases in which intercameral injections are used for postoperative healing, understanding the duration of the medicine in the eye and dosing topical glaucoma medications accordingly can help to manage steroid-induced IOP increases. Angle-based MIGS procedures and those using supraciliary devices involve the stenting, cutting, ablating, or dilating of tissue, which can lead to reflux and iatrogenic hyphemas. In my experience with MIGS procedures, microhyphemas are present on postoperative day one in 0 to 15% of cases, depending on the specific procedure. These hyphemas are not typically visually significant and are almost all self-resolving by one to two weeks postoperative. The best treatment in this situation is patient counseling and education. A benefit of MIGS procedures is that they minimize the risk of postoperative hypotony compared with incisional glaucoma procedures. In angle-based procedures where episcleral venous pressure is present, the risk of hypotony should be close to zero. The risk of hypotony is greater with supraciliary or subconjunctival MIGS procedures, but is still decreased in comparison with incisional filtering procedures, tube shunts, and trabeculectomies. If you see a patient with immediate postoperative hypotony with a formed anterior chamber, a call to the ophthalmologist who performed the procedure is warranted, at minimum. Patients with chronic hypotony should be referred back to the operating surgeon. Patients are commonly seen at one week and one month postoperative. The most common co-management conundrum for patients undergoing cataracts plus MIG surgery is how to titrate topical glaucoma medications postoperatively. Confidence will grow with experience in managing these patients, 
but a general rule of thumb with angle-based MIGs is to be cautious with removing glaucoma medications in the early postoperative period. At six to eight weeks postoperative, when the steroid taper is complete, it is safe to decrease medications with close monitoring of IOP as medications are removed. It is important to inform patients that a medication may be removed for a period of time, but added back to the regimen if IOP does not respond as anticipated. With supraciliary and, even more important, subconjunctival procedures, removing medications can aid in forcing flow through the surgical stent. In the event of numerical hypotony after a supraciliary or subconjunctival procedure, all topical glaucoma medication should be stopped until the IOP elevates. Cycloplegia to relax the anatomy can also be useful in the presence of hypotony. As in routine cataract surgery, a refraction should be performed two to four weeks postoperatively. At three to six months after the cataract plus MIGS procedure, new baseline visual fields and OCT should be obtained and a new target IOP is determined. Unfortunately, cataract surgery plus MIGS will not reverse your patient's existing glaucomatous damage, nor will it provide a permanent cure for glaucoma. However, combined procedures can be effective for patients. In the subset of MIGS procedures approved to be done in conjunction with cataract surgery, the safety aspiration of as safe as cataract surgery alone can almost be thought of as free lunch for patients with concomitant cataracts and glaucoma. Topical glaucoma medications are highly effective, but I believe that if you asked glaucoma patients whether they would like to decrease their medication burden, they would almost universally say yes. Remember, at the time of cataract surgery, resistance, being insurance, is least, and safety, meaning we're already operating inside the eye, is highest for the majority of our MIGS procedures. By my estimation, based on survey and U.S. government workforce data, optometrists are co-managing less than 25% of the cataract surgeries being performed today in the United States. By embracing the co-management of these patients, optometrists can leverage continuity of care and allow surgeons more flexibility in their schedules to provide surgery for the patients who need it most. Having a foundational knowledge of the three minimally invasive glaucoma surgery outflow pathways, being trabecular meshwork and Schlem's canal, supraciliary or supracoroidal devices, and then finally subconjunctival devices can be helpful to provide preoperative education and set appropriate expectations for each individual patient. Optometry's opportunity to collaborate in pre- and post-operative care for combined cataract and glaucoma surgery will continue to rise along with the aging of the population the number of cataract surgeries being performed, and the prevalence of glaucoma. Before we go, don't forget to subscribe to The Mod Pod on Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also stream episodes on demand at itube.net forward slash podcasts. Tell your friends. <laughs>